nursing industry is one of the fastest growing career forces in the world today. There are so many issues in the healthcare field these days relating to nurses that simply are not discussed in the media. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with Leanne Meyer. Our program will help you with the most relevant information if you're in the nursing field or are planning to enter the industry. Now, here is your host, Leanne Meyer. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. I am Leanne Meyer, and I want to just tell you I'm so happy to have so many people uh, contacting and and um, listening into the show. Um, I want to mention, too, that our sponsor today is hollyblue.com, the nurse community app, which is for and about nurses. On the app, you should find resumes, tools to help stay organized, professional opportunities, community support, peer support, a self-empowerment and self-care app, as well as a nurse's lifeblood of healthcare page. Their motto is hollyblue.com, a community where nurses thrive. It's a great, great app, and I hope everyone can check it out. So hollyblue.com. Uh, today's episode is called CNOs of New York, COVID Debrief, and uh, I am very, very excited. I've been wanting to have this show easily for the last, you know, three to four months, uh, and so I'm so very happy to be able to um, do this show today. So we all have been holding our breaths since really February or maybe March for some of us when we started to be more aware of what was going on with COVID-19 through July. So um, as healthcare systems uh, of New York uh, rocked on the precipice of collapse from the onset of COVID-19 as the first major center of infection, my guests were nurses in the heart of the crisis and are here to share the experience from an inside view. Roseanne Rosso is a DNP, uh, a, a doctor of nurse practitioner, vice president and chief nursing officer at Presbyterian uh, Wheel Cornell. And Linda Valentino is an RN and NEABC. I'm not even sure what that stands for. So vice president of nursing operations at the Mount Sinai Hospital. And just uh, Recently, she became the chief nursing officer at Mount Sinai West and senior vice president of women's and children's services at uh, Mount Sinai Hospital Services. So, um, Dr. Roseanne Rosso, I want to welcome you to Once a Nurse, and I wonder if you could say hello and uh, give us a brief bio. What brought you to nursing and then to your role that you currently hold? Well, thank you, Leanne. So what brought me to nursing is an interesting story. As I was graduating from high school, I wanted to go to college, but I had no money and no guidance. I was good in math and science, and I loved being of service to others. I had a long history of volunteer work even as a teenager. And looking at my local community college, nursing was a top choice for somebody like me. So that Mm -hmm. is how I went into nursing. And it turned out to be the best decision of my life. I uh, am so happy to be a nurse. I wouldn't change a thing about, about my career. So I started out as a staff nurse in the VA system. I was a critical care nurse working in intensive care units. 
And then I got my master's in education and became a clinical nurse specialist specializing in cardiology. And from that point, I moved into management and leadership positions, first as a director of critical care nursing, and then into my very first chief nurse job of a 110-bed hospital. And Mm -hmm. five chief nurse jobs later, I am (laughs) the chief nursing officer at Weill Cornell New York Presbyterian, which is an 870-bed quaternary care center. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Nursing Management Journal, which has a circulation of 58,000 and is a serious resource for frontline managers. So I think it's time I stop talking about myself, Leanne. <laughs> no, you're, you're just fine. So Linda Valentino, um, I welcome you also to Once a Nurse, and thank you so much for joining. Um, tell us about how you found nursing and then how you found your way to this role at Mount Sinai Hospitals. Thank you, Leanne, and thank you for inviting me to join you today. I, um, I am one of those nurses that always knew that I would be a nurse. I am the only nurse in my family, and um, I would say from the time that I can remember to anyone who would ask that I wanted to be a nurse. So for Hmm. me, I think it was uh, really a true calling, and I also, during the high school years, uh, did a lot of volunteer work in hospitals, and despite uh, what nurses told me uh, about nursing that was negative, I persisted (laughs) and uh, went into nursing, and Um, I, too, have never looked back. It's been a a fantastic career um, and one that has been so gratifying to me. Um, I started in nursing as a critical care and trauma nurse at Weill Cornell um, in the Burn Center, and uh, from there uh, went into progressive leadership roles, my first management role in nursing. Actually, I reported to Roseanne Rasso, and she was my mentor in my first management job. Um, and after that, really uh, went on to different roles, including education, and spent a lot of years as director of nursing in large services and academic centers here in New York, and took, uh, was, had my first CNO job uh, at Mount Sinai in Brooklyn, um, and I progressed from there to Mount Sinai Hospital and now most recently uh, at Mount Sinai West. So I am a nurse that uh, has the heart of a nurse and uh, couldn't be thinking about doing anything else but nursing. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I'm so glad to have you say that, both of you, because uh, you're right. You know, you hear positives from people about nursing, but you also hear lots of the negatives. And I think a lot, I don't know if some of that is just we like to complain and some of it is legitimate, absolutely. And some of it is um, uh, just... Maybe it's like talking about our births or something, or you know, having children that everybody wants to tell that how uh, difficult it was for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to go on what both of you have come to is like mystically or um, however it is that you have come to be in this place at this time. Uh, when COVID, COVID struck here in the United States, and particularly on the East Coast. Uh, Linda, I know you have a, a particularly um, uh, important story because you're, the hospital that you were at is the first, like the hot zone, the uh, ground zero of 
of COVID-19 hitting the hospitals in New York City. Is that correct? Yes. Tell me about that. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, I I was the chief nursing officer in Mount Sinai, Brooklyn, which is a 212-bed community hospital um, in a, you know, residential neighborhood in, in Brooklyn. And uh, having left that job late, uh, just just in October prior to the COVID surge, and was working at Mount Sinai Hospital for several months, uh, on Sunday, uh, March 29th, I received a call from our president and chief operating officer of the Mount Sinai Hospital and Fran Cartwright, who is the chief nursing officer there, and they asked me to uh, be redeployed to Mount Sinai, Brooklyn, because the hospital was overrun with COVID patients and all of the, most of the leadership, including the president and the chief nursing officer there, uh, were out on COVID, uh, had COVID illness. And so uh, I was asked to go there and assume the role of incident commander uh, for the hospital in order to restabilize the hospital um, during the surge. And the surge in Brooklyn and Queens had happened um, approximately two to three weeks in advance of New York City. So the wow. outer boroughs of New York were really inundated with COVID patients. Um, and we, as a system, uh, looking back on it now, were really not prepared uh, for that in terms of um, keeping hospitals operational with the onslaught of patients. Okay. So I assume that role. Roseanne, pick up from there and tell about what happened when it hit New York City or what happened when it hit your hospital. Well, it's a similar story. Around the same time, we had our first patient at another hospital in the system in Westchester, which then landed in Columbia. And probably a few days later, we had our first patient here at Weill Cornell on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And then it all happened very, very quickly. Uh, Mm -hmm. It felt like a tsunami of patients was coming in. It began mid-March, and I would say we peaked in mid-April when we had 450 COVID patients in the hospital on on one day with over 220 of them in intensive care units on ventilators. We did not have 220 ICU beds when this started. We did have 100, which is a lot of ICU beds, but it wasn't nearly enough. And Mm. as a nurse leader, I was deeply involved with the command center on multiple strategic decisions that had to be made. And we had to open up more ICU beds as quickly as possible. We opened Mm -hmm. up what I called pop-up ICUs, 10 of them, so that we were able to double and then even go higher than that in our ICU bed capacity to meet the needs of these patients. It was pretty hairy, and you'd make a decision, okay, this is the order, we'll do this. And we thought, okay, in three days from now, we'll open this 10 beds, and then three days from then, we'll open that 10 beds. Well, by the end of the day, we we had to move it up to open that next 10 beds that night because mm-hmm. the patients were coming in so quickly and 
crashing so quickly. Uh. Nurses on the units just reported uh, what we would call a code, you know, or an intubation. So patient really becomes terribly short of breath and needs to go on a ventilator. And units that would not see intubations for months were seeing two, three, and four in one shift. And wow. and then, you know, we we didn't even start talking about the deaths and how people were dying. Mm-hmm. at rates never, Rosanne, ever Rosanne, seen before. before you go into that, and I do want to get to that, I want to go back to Linda. So when you arrived at uh, the hospital, what were you seeing and what was going on and what did you have to do? Yeah, so when I arrived at Mount Sinai, Brooklyn, there were 60-plus um, patients in an ED that is meant to hold 18. So um, emergency department. There were, yep, an emergency department. Uh, is similar to what Roseanne described. We have we have a 12 bed ICU in Mount Sinai, Brooklyn, and we had at that point already in the in the end of March, um, 45 ICU patients. Um, there was a code. Codes were happening every five to seven minutes. Um, staff uh, were not prepared for that onslaught of patients, and therefore processes that were in place uh, for what you would consider sort of normal um, infection prevention strategies kind of went out the window because of the volume. And so what we had to do was really reorganize the access and amounts of PPE. There were, we, were never, we never had a shortage, but we had to think about the distribution of it differently. We had to think about um, opportunities to uh, relieve staff uh, who were re- responding to codes every five to seven minutes and, and activated both supplies and people uh, to Mount Sinai, Brooklyn, from the Mount Sinai Health System, as well as organize transfers of patients who were critically ill to our other sites. And as a result of doing that, the Mount Sinai Hospital, which is the, the largest of the Mount Sinai Health System, uh, ultimately cared for um, over 700 uh, COVID patients in-house at any given time. And similar to while Cornell, hundreds were of ICU level with the need to expand the ICU bed. So what was critically important in Brooklyn was to stabilize, transfer, and be sure that patient, uh, that staff were safe. So in, on any given day in the system, it would be 700 uh, patients a day with COVID in we, ICU? We had... We, we maxed at 700 COVID patients just in the Mount Sinai Hospital. So I think at one point um, we could have been over 1,000 in the whole system. I don't know for sure, oh, but goodness. it's certainly possible. So talk with each other about what it was like for the two of you and kind of, um, you know, remembering and, you know, maybe working off of each other on, on what, what is the job of a CNO in this kind of a situation? Oh, where shall we begin? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, stay calm. Say. Stay really calm. <laughs> we, yes. Being uh, in times like this when the organization, the campus, the hospital, the staff, the nurses, everybody is stressed to a level never seen before with a disease 
never seen before. Uh, my One of my many jobs at that time was representing nursing and patients in the command center and showing a calm, confident leadership oh. to everyone, being able to communicate transparently, whether it was good news, bad news, uncertain news, uh, what was happening, what was happening next, uh, how how to keep staff safe. There was mm-hmm. so much fear. We did not have enough PPE. The whole state was scrambling to get enough PPE to provide for our staff, for scrubs, for hotel rooms, for transportation, for food. There were so many basics people needed in order to be able to come to work and do this work. And on top of that, while the staff had their own personal fears and issues they were dealing with, kids that were out of school and all of a sudden had to be on remote learning, spouses that maybe were furloughed. I mean, you could just go on and on about the stresses that everybody was under during that time. But my job was to stay calm, confident, Mm -hmm. uh, make strategic decisions that were right Mm -hmm. for staff and patients constantly, to have moral courage to mm-hmm. follow your values despite what was happening. And I think the communication piece, I can't stress that enough that mm-hmm. when you are under disaster conditions like this, having that transparent communication by whatever way possible mm-hmm. was a big part of what I did. In addition to staffing resources, how do we staff? Mm-hmm. We were bringing in external help. How do we train people to work ICU that's never worked in ICU before without the benefit of a 12-week orientation like we normally do? Uh, working with the Department of Psychiatry to provide emotional support to staff. So there were, I mean, that's just a snippet of mm-hmm. of what mm-hmm. I was doing during yep. that time. Linda, take it away. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I, Roseanne, it's, 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 I think, um, you know, the themes that Roseanne has talked about is um, staying calm and being brave, absolutely. Um, I, I work 20 hours a day easily for at least a three-week period straight. And communication, I would wake up, communicate, walk around. I probably clocked more steps than I ever have in my entire career. I made sure that I went to every unit that I touched as many staff as I could to hear them, to support them, and then to turn around and make sure they got the resources that they needed. They got the emotional support. They got the staff that they needed. Um, We, at one point in Brooklyn, had 50% of the nursing leadership out with COVID illness. So I was doing the staffing for all the units. One or two nurse managers were helping me hold up the whole building. Um, and so, the, and there wasn't help coming from other places in the system because they were over beginning to become overrun with patients as well. So I became very um, through this crisis in particular, and has really taught me what nurse leaders do, and that is to to as Roseanne said, maintain the moral compass. And that's what nurses do, um, and that's what nurse leaders do. So, for example. When patients were dying, we, were, we had, uh, in one day, we had 24 deaths in one day. Um, and I was just absolutely distraught over the fact that it was happening, but that staff 
were having to deal with that much death. And I was very concerned for their well-being. And so I implemented um, a best practice that I had learned of uh, from a trauma team in Maryland called the pause, where you simply, if a patient dies, you stop and you say, this is a patient who, this person was a father, he was loved, he was a member of our community, and we're going to you know, just reflect for 45 seconds. And that's, that allowed the staff to slow down enough so they weren't going from death to death to death, but really maintaining the humanity in what was happening. Um, and that's what nurse leaders do. They, they make decisions that at the time are going to support staff and patients. And that was just one of them. And I'm sure, Roseanne, you have many others. Um, and the things that you do, everything that you do matters. It matters because staff are relying on you and so are patients. So that ability to, to hold up the roof but also at the same time maintain the, the morality and moral compass of what we do for patients and staff I think is, is uh, of supreme importance. I couldn't agree more with everything that you just said. And, Linda, thank you for sharing the pause, which mm -hmm. was a beautiful practice to help people get grounded uh, and deal with the situation. It was really tough uh, with patients dying over and over again. And what made it even tougher was we were not allowed to have visitors at that time. COVID was rampant in the city. And the Department of Health and the governor had banned visits. I mean, everybody was sheltering at home. So in order, to, so dealing with end-of-life care for nurses, when you could not have family there to be with mm -hmm. the patient, I mean, this is typically how we do end-of-life is the, uh, the loved ones for the patient are there. They do a vigil by the bedside. Whatever that family and patient need for those last hours or days, uh, we we support, but they're together. They couldn't be together. Nurses mm -hmm. had to use FaceTime with patients and families mm -hmm. and go into the patient room. So what a nurse uh, might do is outside the room call the family on FaceTime before being completely garbed up in all of the PPE necessary to enter the patient's room so that the family could see her uh, or him and uh, relate more as a person than somebody in all this garb and mm. goggles and face shields right. and, and everything else. And then from there uh, would go garb up and go into the room and hold the phone up for the family to, and most of the time, the patient was not conscious. They were on a ventilator. Mm -hmm. They were paralyzed and sedated. And the family on the phone via FaceTime would be saying goodbye and telling this COVID victim how much they love them mm. and all the things that happen at end of life that are heartbreaking. Well, multiply mm -hmm. that by 20, 100, 1,000. I don't even know what exponent would be correct. And for the nurses who had to witness this one by one family saying goodbye to their loved ones and, and the tears and the crying and the emotion, 
and nurses were integral to these families being able to do that and had to do that over and over. Kids, kids mm-hmm. with their parents. I mean, it was just heartbreaking. I mean, it is no wonder that in a study of nurses in New York City recently, over 50% of nurses have symptoms of acute mm-hmm. stress. Uh, we're, we're not even over it yet. I mean, it was Oh, my so God. It'll be years. Traumatizing psychologically, and we are you know, headed into the fall resurgence. It's about to start all over again. Now, we don't think it will be as bad as the spring, but when I look at Europe, what happened in the spring is I would wake up in the morning at the crack of dawn. Oh, it was way before the crack of dawn. And (laughs) I would open my phone and I would read about Italy and what was Mm -hmm. happening in Italy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how the hospitals in the Lombardy region were overcrowded and patients were dying and they couldn't even get to hospitals and and just how horrible it was. And I thought, oh, my God, are we going to turn into Italy? I was so Mm -hmm. frightened that that would happen. And it didn't quite get that bad, but it was bad. So to have to do that again is totally frightening to staff here. And now we're seeing that Europe is bad again, but so is, you know, most of the country here, except where we are in New York City right now, it seems the Northeast is is still pretty good. Uh, So we just fear that. Uh, A staff told me afterwards, I cannot do that again. I hate yeah, to so interrupt you, but we need think, to go I, I to a break of, here, and then I'd like to come back and maybe, uh, Linda, you can talk a little bit about some of the things that Roseanne is just mentioning, and um, mm-hmm. even the logistics of, you know, having all of these deaths uh, one after mm-hmm. another, and um, yep. not being able to take the time that we would normally take to care for the body, you know, how many people who were doing various different roles. So this is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. And today's show uh, uh, is called CNOs of New York COVID Debrief. And we, I'm here today with Dr. Roseanne Rosso. She is the Chief Nursing Officer and Vice President of Presbyterian while Cornell, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, and Linda Valentino, who is currently the Chief Nursing Officer of Mount Sinai West and Senior Vice President of Women's and Children's Services at Mount Sinai um, Health Health Services. Um, We will be back in just a minute. Thank you. us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. WomenInHealthcare.org, a national nonprofit, is our newest partner at Once a Nurse. It is among the most rapidly growing professional development groups for women in healthcare today. Through healthcare education, professional development, mentorship, community and a focus on self, the organization empowers women with the tools needed to advance their careers. They use initiatives to break down barriers within organizations and equip women with the tools needed to open a powerful force for gender parity. 
80% of the healthcare workforce is female, with nurses a massive majority of that percentage. But less than 20% of leadership is female. Join womeninhealthcare.org as they help all women of all ages and all levels rise up. Use code HEALTHPROS to receive $50 off the annual membership fee and receive discounted pricing for events, free resources, webinars, and a substantial discount for our annual Leadership Summit on October 22, 2020. Womeninhealthcare.org to be where you want to be in the world of healthcare. Hey nurses, what would you say is the hardest part about being a nurse? Well, most of you would say it's putting everyone else's needs before our own, which means not enough time for self-care. And this is why Holly Blue has created a peer support and community app just for nurses, so you can take care of you. Holly Blue is the ultimate nurse app to help you connect with local nurses, organize your nurse life in one place, restore your love for nursing, and empower you to thrive in a field that needs you. Want to see how it works? Student nurses, nurses, and retired nurses can download this free app on the App Store or Google Play now. Just type in H-O-L-L-I-B-L-U or go to hollyblue.com to start connecting. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Welcome back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. I am Leanne Meyer, and I am so, so happy to have this show today, this episode. Uh, It's called CNOs of New York, COVID Debrief. And the two people that I have here uh, with me is Dr. Roseanne Rosso, who is the Vice President and Chief Nursing Officer of Presbyterian while Cornell and Linda Valentino, who currently is the Chief Nursing Officer of Mount Sinai West and Senior Vice President of, of Women's and Children's Services at Mount Sinai Hospitals. Um, so, Linda, we were just talking before the break. Roseanne was talking about the the death aspect, about you know before everything hit. Um, hearing about what was going on in Italy and thinking, oh my gosh, is that going to be us? So. From your point of view, pick that up. Um, thank you, Leanne. Uh, so as Roseanne was relating um, that uh, story of what, thinking about what was happening in Italy before the, the COVID surge hit us, um, as a nurse leader, um, you're watching that happening and you're thinking in your mind, suppose this happens here. How do I plan for that? How do I prepare my staff? How do I prepare myself? So going through the what-if scenarios. Um, and for, for us um, at, at Mount Sinai, we had the first COVID-positive patient in New York. And once that happened, and that was at the end of February, um, there were probably two weeks lag before it kind of came into everyone's consciousness that, you know, this could be really much bigger than we thought. Um, mm-hmm. And so which left us very little time to prepare. And at that point, it wasn't very clear what the PPE standards should be. The CDC recommendations were a little bit all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so it made it very difficult to imagine what we needed to, to do prior to the surge. 
And Roseanne also mentioned something about um, through the surge and the number of deaths. And while I was at Mount Sinai, Brooklyn, I recall, um, you know, we had every hospital had these large refrigerator trailers because mm-hmm. the mortuary staff were overrun and could not manage the number of bodies that needed to be um, prepared for their final place. And uh, we would, we, I received a call from a family member one morning at Brooklyn, and the person was quite distraught on the other end of the phone, and it turns out was a granddaughter of a woman that had passed in Brooklyn who was a Holocaust survivor. And she wore a ring that was a family heirloom um, and that had survived the Holocaust and was to be kept in that family. And the woman was distraught that, did we have it? Um, Could we preserve it? Please have it. And I went to go look at all the patient belongings of those that had died, and it was literally a a garage behind the hospital full of patient belongings. Oh, my word. And I made it a personal mission to find that person's belongings. And so you kind of go from the very specific to the very macro view of how you care for patients Mm -hmm. and staff. And in that situation, um, you know, I was very determined to make sure that I was able to give that to that family when they, in fact, weren't able to be there with their loved one, as Roseanne described, but that Mm -hmm. we could give them at least that was very important to me. Mm-hmm. So that's what leaders do. They make sure that the right thing happens, right, and that we care for people in the best way possible and put all of our resources um, toward that. And I think that this experience has really amplified that um, for me, and I certainly will, will never forget, forget that part of my job and um, feel very proud to have, been, uh, to have served our, the community in that way. It sounds like that you were right there for the nurses and they knew you had their back because you Mm -hmm. were rounding on them, asking them how they were doing and supplying them. Uh, Even the logistics of supplying, you know, um, professional mental health support, uh, you know, the the, um, uh, people from uh, uh, spiritual care. All of that, I just can't even imagine how you were able to do that for for everybody. And yet I, I know you did, and I think that is so incredible. Uh, Roseanne, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I, I just heard you end by saying I think that was so incredible. And I think Linda and I both agree that how we served during that time was Uh, Incredible is certainly an adjective that works. I Mm -hmm. felt like Mm -hmm. a general in an Mm -hmm. army. Uh, Using military metaphors seemed to be the only thing that Mm -hmm. worked. Uh, It Mm -hmm. was... uh, There was a lot to do, and I guess we were just so busy 
with all these decisions and communications and rounding and logistics and mm-hmm. changing rules that were going every day. It was mm-hmm. something else. And in the beginning, you didn't even have to wear a mask. It wasn't required. Mm-hmm. And then we uh, went to masks required, and then it was N95 masks or no N95 masks, and we didn't have enough, so you had to reuse them. And then how staff were so innovative with doing that. Mm-hmm. It was it was unrelenting for, mm-hmm. I would say, about two months straight. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. unrelenting. And... But I'm probably a better person for having been through it uh, and a better leader for having been through it. I don't think I've healed from that just as uh, there are 3,000 nurses here. And, you know, we all have not healed from this experience. This is my fear is that, you know, you talk about um, being the moral core for for the team and showing – that strength, but nurses do that all the time in the crisis. It's when the crisis ends, then we need that time to be able to repair and heal and talk and, and do that. And now, like you said, we're going right back into with the flu and COVID coming back around and maybe even being slightly changed from what it was before. Um, Linda, what, what happens now? So what we have been doing, um, and I remember in in about the beginning of May, I had a conversation with my colleagues, uh, nurse leaders here at Mount Sinai, and said, we've got to do something dramatic for our nurses. We've got to support them. We need to give them resources um, to heal. And so the Mount Sinai, the Icon School of Medicine, has um, developed a, a center for resilience, and actually the dean of the School of Medicine uh, has written and published on, on this topic, having had a personal experience of being uh, the victim of a, a shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and he's a psychiatrist. So we've engaged um, in a very big way to support our nurses, uh, availing them to an array of resources, ranging from access to, you know, individualized treatment uh, through structured therapy or um, group therapy, uh, apps to track your feelings and how to elevate your mood. So depending upon where you think you are, uh, you can access those resources. And more specifically, we have engaged um, uh, some group debriefings with our nurse leaders because we want them to be strong so that they can be strong for their staff uh, mm-hmm. and, and the nursing leadership have joined uh, in in that process with the nurse leaders as well. So it's certainly an imperfect science, and it's a lot of uh, trauma-informed leadership strategies, uh, which are, you know, PTSD kind of driven debriefing strategies. Um, but we have no idea if it works, right? We're just doing mm-hmm. it, but we don't right. know if it works. We have seen, in some cases, an increase in the number of retirements for nurses that are just Mm. a little bit before retirement age, but they're saying now, you know, I'm not going through COVID again. Mm -hmm. So the the damage toll uh, in relation to staff, their well-being, their their willingness to stay on and maybe work a few more years, we're certainly seeing that. Roseanne, are you seeing that as well? 
I'm seeing it. I've actually seen frontline nurse leaders who, after, and it was really, really tough on them, that have decided not to stay as leaders. Mm-hmm. And so they're staying within nursing, but not as nurse leaders. It was just too much. Yeah. Uh, so I, I am seeing that. We are, you know, we were offering retirement packages for people as part of a financial thing mm-hmm. even before this started. So it's hard for me to separate who's taking a package because it's a good package from I'm after COVID, I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe there's a little more of it. Mm-hmm. What yeah. one of my my great fears was that you know that that these nurses would go to um, the psychotropic meds, uh, some of those things, rather than dealing with the real grief, which is really mm-hmm. the work that needs to be done. And mm-hmm. um, I'm so glad to hear that you are supporting that work. And as you said, it's going to go on for a long, long time, mm-hmm. for some people longer than others. But the fact that you're supporting them and offering that and telling them it's okay to, you know, Mm -hmm. access this. You don't have to be. I heard one person say um, that everyone was calling them heroes. But she said Mm -hmm. she felt like that made them seem um, disposable. That, you know, if you went into this and you were a nurse and you were a hero, then you had to expect to die doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's not what you expect when you go into nursing, that you are going to become a victim of the work you're doing. Um, Certainly not. Go ahead. So I I think that, you know, this touches on um, something that's kind of near and dear to me in terms of, the, the image of nursing overall, right? Uh-huh. And um, I know that we've had some conversations recently with Roseanne, and we talked about, um, you know, that n- nurses were portrayed positively through the COVID um, crisis. However, I think they were portrayed as, actually, they were there, which nurses are generally not in the media as, as much as they should be. However, um, at least they were there and recognized. But portraying them as heroes, as angels with wings, um, mm-hmm. it sort of brings to mind that, um, in general, maybe the public doesn't know what nurses do, mm-hmm. and maybe even more than that, doesn't even understand what nurse leaders do. And I was um, a part of a publication through New York Magazine that chronicled what was happening at Mount Sinai, Brooklyn, because it was the epicenter of the COVID crisis. And despite that I was the incident commander and brought the hospital back from collapsing, um, it was the doctors that received the highest accolades in that article. And mm-hmm. so I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of how we think about the image of nursing and having the general public understand that and how we think about the role of the nurse leader and how the public understands that. Um, when I tell uh, non-medical folks that I'm a chief nursing officer, they're like, oh, you're a nurse. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? So you can't, they can't, yeah. you know, they just don't have the image, right? right. Oh, so, I still get that too. When I say right. I'm the chief nursing officer at Wild Cornell Medical Center, New York Presbyterian, they say, 
oh, do you have to work weekends or is it yeah. day shift? Or, uh, so there's an understanding that nurses, what, well, at least what hours nurses work. But when you present as a nurse leader, I mean, it's really deer in the headlights. Meanwhile, I'm responsible for 3,000 full-time equivalents and probably 60 different departments when you count all the units and the various departments that report to me. I mean, it is, it's huge and uh, it's, uh, it's invisible to the public. Yeah, this is part of why I'm doing this show is that I want to be that that foundation, that place that nurses' voices can get out there. Um, as we're coming to, uh, we, we still have um, some time here, but as we're uh, starting toward the end of the show, what are some things that you want to make sure that we're getting out to people that either um, haven't experienced this maybe in some, I don't know where, because the entire country certainly has been dealing with this. Um, how can we get the understanding that nurses are the people who know the patients? They are the people who are innovating every day, all through their shifts, 12, 16-hour shifts, some of them have been working. Um, uh, Roseanne, do you want to start and just talk a little bit in a couple minutes? Um, I want each of you to be able to talk about it. Uh, what do you see for how we can let people know what it is that nurses bring to the table? That is such a good question that I don't feel like I have a good answer to, to be honest. And I think I'm taking up your passion, though, in trying to figure this out. Mm-hmm. I think that the image of nursing was, this was the year of, this was the international year of the nurse, yes. 2020, because on May oh, 11th, 11th was yes, Florence or 12th, Nightingale's I think it was her birthday. 200th <laughs> birthday. So this was declared by the World Health Organization as the International Year of the Nurse and Midwife. And, you know, we all had all these ideas in our head of what this year would be in terms of celebrations. Well, we weren't able to do any of that. and But it has been the International Year of the Nurse, because globally, images of nurses during this pandemic have definitely shown a different image. It's not just the angel of mercy image that we've been stuck with forever and ever. It was more of a fearless, courageous, grit and resilience image uh, that, uh, you know, hands-on saving patients. So you saw that over and over in videos and photos and news clips. So I, and how nurses make a difference with patients. So I think that helped and I feel like if we can build on that, mm-hmm. uh, this is definitely our time to be able to share what we do. I don't know, Linda, do you have any magic bullets on yeah. this? <laughs> yeah, I, I would totally agree that, you know, the door has opened uh, for us to be able to influence the image of nursing as a result of the COVID crisis. Um, I think, you know, it's it's a it's a... It's a think local, act global mentality. Um, so, for example, uh, in Mount Sunny Health System, I we're working on 
you know, we've decided to work on image of nursing and our own brand as Mount Sinai nurses. And so we, I have engaged um, a portrait artist named Rebecca Moses, mm-hmm. and she's painting gorgeous, beautiful uh, um, watercolors of 50 of the Mount Sinai nurses. And we're erecting an exhibit of those portraits in our lobby to say thank you to our nurses. And then we will use those portraits and have them persist within the hospital walls to honor our nurses uh, in in perpetuity. So I think Mm -hmm. small gestures like realistic representations of who our nurses are and Mm -hmm. honoring them locally in the places that we work is one way to start. And then you start to build on that, right? And so you give the realistic balanced view of who the nurse is. But we've got to get into the media. We've got to have nursing stories told. We've got to have nursing leader stories told. And we know through the Woodhull study from Diana Mason's group that, you know, nurses are not often referenced in the media as experts. So what you're doing, Leanne, in just in this podcast to me, is a step forward. Um, but I think it's as important as the decisions that we make every day to make sure that we also represent our brand of nurses um, in the community and, and, and really take every opportunity to put nurses out there to have folks understand who we are and what we contribute. And, and I think that, you know, I think there's so many people that still see the nurse as a handmaiden to the doctor. And that is so far out of date that it's it's not even funny because really doctors are coming at healthcare in a completely different viewpoint than we are. Many times it seems like they're coming from the idea of somebody is sick or hurt or whatever, and we're going to fix them or make them, you know, try and bring them um, to a healthier point. Whereas nurses are looking at the whole person as is, what is it that is bringing this person here? And not just looking at a diagnosis, but who of all of who this person is has brought them to this point where um, we want to keep people healthy. And we can do that because there's so many of us, we need to go out into the communities and be able to help people before they get sick and to stay mm-hmm. well and to feel good. So as we, I feel like um, we're... Um, uh, just about five minutes to close here, and I, I just want each of you to to say uh, something about. I feel like healthcare has been needing a huge overhaul, and I want nurses to not just be at the table, but to be leading the changes, determining, helping to determine what healthcare is going to be in the future. So, can um, Linda? I don't know if you recently talked. If you want to start, and then we'll end with um, Roseanne. Sure. I mean, just just in the state of New York, thinking about the number of nurse practitioners that we have that are um, both working in the communities um, and in our hospital systems and um, how we've been able to advance uh, their professional practice, uh, scope of practice, um, and where they can autonomously care for uh, people in the community, particularly those in underserved uh, places and with chronic illnesses, um, and I think that those are those are exactly the kinds of images, Leanne, that we want to portray, um, mm-hmm. and that we want to elevate and have an understanding of what the impact of nursing practices uh, in our communities. Um, 
so um, I, I think we just have to clarify roles and hold them up and have them be seen publicly. Roseanne? I agree. I, I also think we need our organization's help with that. And the other thought that came to my mind with this conversation now is that Linda and I really focused on acute care through this whole show mm -hmm. uh, in the hospital and people on ventilators, and it was focused on acute care. There is a whole world of nursing that is in continuing care, in long-term care, mm -hmm. in primary mm -hmm. care. And mm -hmm. when you were talking about nurse practitioners, yes, we have nurse practitioners in the hospital taking care of inpatients, but there are many nurse practitioners who are in the community providing primary care. There are nurse practitioner-run clinics mm -hmm. that are providing extraordinary care. And I, I, that's another area that I think the public doesn't really know a lot mm -hmm. about. So there are, are many, many areas of nursing, and we've touched on just a, the tip of the iceberg, that I would love to be part of helping the public really understand what nurses do. Mm -hmm. yep. So maybe this Agreed. is the beginning of a of a uh, another session on this. Linda, you're going to say something. I, I totally agree, and and I agree with where you're going, Leanne. And I think um, nurses are are cradle to grave along the continuum of care, and they're out there. They're mm -hmm. they're caring for people in all different phases of their lives, and that's mm -hmm. the beauty of nursing. Yeah, and their focus is 100 percent that patient. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, we are we probably have just a, a couple of minutes left here, but um, I wanted to kind of close here and then see if um, there's anything that you want to add if we if we have a moment here. But I just wanted to say that I feel like patient lives are important and healthcare worker lives are equally important. If we don't have them. We not only lose the vast knowledge and experience they have accumulated, but the caring, compassionate humans we need to care for us and for themselves. We must collaborate with China, Italy, South Korea, and all countries who have learned about this virus the hard way and can shed light on it for our country and share what we have learned too. This is truly how the world has moved forward together following war, starvation, and pestilence since the beginning of time. Collaboration, win-win. Let's bring it back out of the mothballs and use it again. We need to be scientific and open to all solutions in order to end this pandemic and any others that come, come up. So please check out my website, www.onceanurse.com for the Caring Corner, which has sharing re, uh, shares resources uh, for mental health and for many other things, and also support in general for healthcare workers. And for any of you who have ideas on how we can move forward together, write me at leanne, L-E-A-N-N-E, at onceanurse.com. That's leanne at onceanurse.com. Um, we have just a few seconds here before we are off the air. Uh, is there anything you want to say as a last 
a last input. I think it looks like we've got about 30 seconds, actually. I'm going to have thank to you. just go out. Thank you so much. Well, thank I'm, you. I'm just going to so say welcome. thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you, Linda, for being a great partner in this discussion. Excellent. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you, Roseanne. So this, thank you. This, this has been Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, Exploring the World of Nursing. I'm Leanne Meyer, and thank you so much for listening. Please share with your friends. Thank you for listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with your host, Leanne Meyer. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a productive and insightful week.